Chapter 4 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The Smaller Cacti, Shrubs, and Flowers. The desert is the kingdom of the cacti, for the cacti are the special offspring of the desert. With ingenious pains, nature has wrought out this unique family fitted to endure the very reverse of ordinary plant conditions their part is to hold the frontier that meets the empire of drought and they are shaped and armed for the task since leaves yield too much to evaporation spines and thorns are adopted rainfall being a matter of doubt the cactus models itself on the canteen and fills up to the limit when it gets a chance and since a canteen is a temptation to thirsty tramps such as jackrabbit and coyote the spines are hooked barbed clawed and made as generally troublesome as possible yet it seems as if when the matter of blossoms come up nature's heart relented she could not bring herself to fashion a forbidding flower after the giant saguaro described in the previous chapter the barrel cactus Echinocactus cylindraceus, Bisnaga or Bisnaga of the Mexicans, is the one that first claims notice. Here and there about the rocky hillsides and mesas stand these odd shapes, upright cylinders from two to six feet high. The surface is beautifully fluted and covered with a close network of spines three or four inches long, hard as ivory and sharp as needles, real works of art. On the top of the cylinder, there comes in spring a circle of papery, rose-like, lemon-yellow flowers. They sprout directly from the cylinder, making a dainty pale gold coronet that seems strangely out of place on that preposterously tousled nigger head, as the plant is sometimes called. This portly vegetable is, as I suggested, really a reservoir of water. The interior is a sponge of water-holding tissue, protected from evaporation by the leathery skin. Desert men, of course, know all about this convenient arrangement, and draw upon it at need. Many a life forfeited to the thirst demon would have escaped out of his hand, if the doomed wretch had but known the secret. He is an unwise man indeed, who dares that demon without the key to many of the desert's problems. The process of tapping this source of water is simple enough. The top of the barrel is cut off. A depression is scooped in the pulp. The surrounding tissue is crushed by pounding with axe helve or anything that will serve as a pestle. And then a clear liquid, rather flattened taste, but quite drinkable, will gradually exude into the hollow that has been made in the pulp. Like Samson's conundrum, out of the eater came forth meat. One may say of the bisnaga, out of the drinker came forth water. Next, if not first in obtrusiveness, is the choya, Opuntia bigelovii. First, it certainly is in villainous traits and in the ill regard of every desert traveler. It is an ugly object, three or four feet high, with stubby arms standing out like amputated stumps. The older parts are usually black with decay, the rest of a sickly greenish white and the whole thing is covered with horrible barbed spines, uncountable in quantity and detestable in every regard. It has, moreover, a very vile habit of shedding its joints, 
and these roll by instinct into the places where they can most easily achieve their purpose, which is to stab the feet of horses and spike pedestrians through their boots, as they readily can do. Everyone who has traveled with horses on the desert has had the job of ridding his animals of these devils, which in many places grow so thickly that to dodge them is out of the question. The Indians say that they jump at you. This sounds like an exaggeration, but upon my word I don't know. Often when I have felt sure that I passed clear of a certain choya, I found he had me after all. I remember some years ago crossing the Devil's Garden, a great cactus thicket between the Whitewater Wash and Seven Palms. My companion and his Arizona cowpony were both old desert habitués and past masters in cactus, while my mount also hailed from the Arizona ranges where cactus is the daily round the common task. Yet our combined sagacity came far short of keeping us out of trouble. First one and then the other of us had to stop, kneel in the roasting sand, with the sun at somewhere about 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and pull out one by one the long barbed thorns from the feet and knees of the wincing animals. In these minor surgical operations, we gradually lost sight of each other, and it was not until long after dark that we met again at our designated camp at Whitewater. The Choya is the general enemy. In autumn, when the range is at its poorest, I have often seen cattle in horrible distress from a great lump of this fiendish plant that had got hooked onto their muzzles as they searched for browse. At every attempt to feed, the tormenting imp, of course, took a stronger hold. As one cannot come near these half-wild cattle of the ranges except by lassoing them, many an unlucky steer has died of starvation from sheer inability to pick up feed. I could willingly devote a chapter to abusing the choya. Enough, however, to add that the blossom is of a pale, unwholesome green, hardly noticeable, and that if the plant bears any helpful or even innocent part in the scheme of things on this planet, I should be glad to hear of it. I do indeed remember to have seen hornets in search of building sites inspecting the choya with evident approval, but that hardly counts for a virtue. Prominent almost everywhere in the view is another cactus, often called from its branching, antler-like habit, the deerhorn cactus, Opuntia echinocarpa. Unobservant people are apt to confuse this species with the last name and call it choya. If one should do so, it would be proper to apologize. Without being a saint, one may object to being taken for a murderer. The deerhorn grows in spreading shape to a height of six feet or more, a maze of bristling ramifications that form the favorite nesting place for one of the desert birds. Here the cactus wren builds and broods as secure from snakes and other enemies as if she were housed in the interior of a hedgehog. I have once seen the nest of this bird in a true choya, probably the device of some super-careful mother who had had unfortunate experience in speaking with the enemy at the gate. The deerhorn bears a rather pretty flower of an uncommon brownish-green or bronze hue, seen, I think, in this plant alone. Less frequently met is a species much like Echinocarpa, but with stems and joints much thinner and thorns fewer, though not less aggressive. This is Opuntia ramosissima. 
it bears a small brown flower a hue that flora does not greatly love but though she is no quaker variety is her breath of life so even brown is adopted as a novelty the handsomest of all cactus blossoms to my mind is that of sirius engelmanii which grows usually in company with the two foregoing species the plant looks like a colony of a dozen or so spiny cucumbers set upon end generally under the shade of a creosote bush or in the lee of a boulder i have no grudge against this fellow who bites only if you strike him the blossom is a most charming one a sheeny rose-like cup of superb purple or wine color crowded with golden anthered stamens and with a pistil breaking into soft green plumes that curl as daintily as a moth's antenna one who is on the desert in spring should on no account miss the sight of this exquisite flower almost as handsome is the blossom of another common desert cactus opuntia basilaris this is one of the flat-lobed or pancake species and is similar in general habit to the common tuna prickly pear or indian fig the flower buds sprout in a row from the edges of the lobes and make a fine show with their cups of silky cerise this plant like the tuna is valuable to the indians who achieve a special delicacy by cooking the young buds in a pit heated with hot stones but let the unwary beware there is more in the basilaris than meets the eye the lobes have a downy innocent look spines apparently absent trust her not for she is fooling thee the velvety surface is covered with myriads of infinitely fine prickles that come off at the lightest touch and form a sort of plush on the rash person's skin almost invisible but most aggravating to the touch the removing of them though a fine exercise in patience is one of the most melancholy occupations that i know all of the foregoing bear cup-shaped papery blooms of what may be called the usual cactus character there is a quaint little cactus not very common mammillaria tetrancistris usually only two or three inches high that has an entirely different flower it is claret color fleshy and vase-shaped and bears for fruit a bright coral-red vessel like a tiny chili from which it gets its mexican name of chilito i have heard it called strawberry cactus a puzzling misnomer fishhook is another and better name arising from the inch-long thorns curving sharply at the tip and pincushion has an evident bearing on the little green cushion stuck full of shining prickles but as is so often the case the spanish word is the most apt do the mexicans love flowers more than we perhaps they understand them better if only because they look at them with more simplicity there is another species of mammillaria almost identical in appearance with the foregoing except that its flowers are white rather like the tuberose leaving now the thorny subject of the cacti the ruling plant and the one of widest distribution over our southern deserts is the creosote bush larea glandulosa it is a handsome bush often eight or ten feet high airy and spreading with small leaves of brilliant varnished green which give it a pleasing effect in the general scheme of gray from the tarry feeling and smell of the foliage it gets its common name of greasewood or among the mexicans and indians hediomdia meaning bad smelling though the peculiar order is not to me disagreeable 
In spring, the plant is set profusely with starry yellow flowers, which mature into little woolly globes as pretty as the blossoms. Over wide tracts of desert, the creosote is the sole object that breaks the cheerless expanse, and I often felt that the sense of solitude, vastness, and monotony was deepened by the presence of this plant, growing for league on league, almost identical in size and spacing, now stirred to a momentary sigh by the fitful wind, then, in a moment, motionless as death in the trance-like stillness of the heat. A noticeable plant about waterholes and oases is the arrowweed, Lucea sericea. It wears the desert's regular livery of gray and forms dense thickets, six or eight feet high, through which it is not easy to push one's way. The cane-like stems grow straight and stiff from the ground, needing only smoothing by rubbing on a grooved rock to make excellent shafts for the light Indian arrows. The feathery leaves have an acrid smell, always associated in my mind with the thought of jaded arrivals at long-expected camping places and eager draughts of tepid, unsatisfying water. The blossom is a fuzzy, dingy pink affair, appropriate to the unwholesome alkaline soils which the plant seems to prefer. The general grayness of desert vegetation is largely due to one class of plants, the genus Atriplex, which, with its many species, makes up a large proportion of the total growth. Wide areas of low-lying desert are dotted with great hummocks of quail bush, Atriplex lentiformis, curious in their perfect dome-like form, and easily mistaken at a little distance for drifts of sand. This shape, typical of the desert growths, no doubt represents an effort at self-protection from the general persecutor the sun. The canny tortoise seems to have set the model with his make-what-you-can-of-that contour, and there really is not much to be made of it, either by wind, sun, or sandstorm. I often wish that I had been cast in a similar mold. Another atriplex of the species Canescens is noticeable for the bright green tassels of its seed vessels, of a papery texture and peculiar shape for which it has been given the common name of shad scale. Since it fruits in the late summer, when the desert is doubly deserted, its unique feature is not generally known. One more relation of the quail bush that is worth noting is the little prickly-leafed atriplex cymenolytra. The young foliage, of palest gray with rose or lilac shell tints, whitens under the summer sun to almost a look of ivory. At Christmas tide, it is sold in the coast cities as desert holly, sometimes with red berries of other plants artfully attached to make it better fill the part. The leaves are really holly-like in shape, but after all a poor substitute for the royal green ilex without which Christmas is only half a festival often found growing with the ocotillo, which was described in the previous chapter, is the agave deserti. This is a relative of the century plant of parks and gardens, and is almost identical with the indispensable maguey of Mexico. Again, we have the desert's eternal note of gray in the huge bayonet-pointed leaves, from the midst of which, when the plant is twelve to twenty years old, a single straight flowering stalk shoots up to a height of eight or ten feet, breaking into crowded blossoms of honey-dripping yellow. Once having bloomed, the plant dies. Like the ocotillo, 
the agave makes a striking figure in many a desert landscape on scarred sun-smitten hillsides and down leagues long stony bajadas the earth bristles with their blue-white daggers in impenetrable chevaux de frise stuck here and there with leaning poles relics of former years flowering flora is again on the defensive for without those pikes and lances she could never hold her own against the cattle bighorn and deer that covet the succulent flower stems and whose tracks you find in spring all about these forbidden preserves from time immemorial the agave has supplied the desert indians with one of their few luxuries one moreover that is both food and confectionery now that every country store offers easy satisfaction to stomach and sweet tooth this old source of supply has fallen into neglect but now and then the indian answering the call of the wild still grows a field to bake mescal one recent spring i was able to join a friendly vulcan indian who was bound on this time-honored function briefly this is the manner of it arrived at the mescal ground which was on the southern desert overlooking the borrego valley region our first work was to search for plants with flower stalks in the right stage of growth the deer and wild sheep had been before us and it took us an hour or two to secure a dozen young and tender shoots that antonio pronounced bueno with his axe he cut deep into the core of the plant at the base of the great asparagus-like stalk the shoot was cut out its top struck off and the leaves trimmed away leaving a clean butt fifteen inches or so long eight or ten thick and weighing several pounds next a pit was dug two or three feet deep and somewhat more in diameter this was lined bottom and sides with flat slabs of rock and the loose coping was laid also about the edge on this coping the agave butts were laid a good bonfire was built over the pit and allowed to burn for twenty minutes or so the embers falling into the pit and covering the bottom thickly then the butts already charred by the fire were tumbled into the pit and with them the heated coping stones and all the still glowing embers earth was banked up over all and the pit was left for the day the next afternoon we resurrected our booty after some thirty hours baking the charred lumps had much the appearance of elephants feet cutting away the blackened skin we arrived at a golden-brown mass as sweet as molasses and with a flavor that i first found peculiar then interesting and finally seductive in a cranny of the rocks antonio's quick eyes had sighted a relic of mescal baking of old a long straight pole of the heavy wood of the mountain mahogany one end shaped to a chisel-like edge it was antonio said a pewi the tool used for cutting out amouche mescal by his people of bygone days before the white man and his wonderful things of iron and steel had come within their ken it had an uncouth look that suggested the weapons of cave dwellers and i wondered whether the formidable old tool might not have seen wilder service in its day than just the peaceable reaping of agaves i early learned that the desert is full of floral surprises but i was not prepared to find among them a snowy virginal lily down on the sun-seared flats about the upper end of the salton sea i came upon the wonderful hesperocallus undulatus a flower that might be looked for in some carefully warmed and watered greenhouse but never in these arid spaces of sand it was mid-april near the end of the plant's flowering season 
and only a few of them were left in bloom. I was told that a week earlier they had stood in thousands all over the gray levels that stretched from the edge of the bitter sea back to the ochre mountains. Tall and slender, they carried their delicate large bells, three or four to a cluster, knee-high above a mat of wavy, ribbon-like leaves. One rubs one's eyes at meeting these Easter lily-like flowers in this dry and thirsty land where no water is. In the same region, but scattered over a wider territory, is found another choice flower, one of the mint zelias. Its blossom is creamy white, of the most satiny sheen of any flower I know, each petal closely penciled with vermilion in very fine parallel lines. The foliage, however, is harsh and scaly, rather a drawback to the beauty of the plant, whereas the lily is wholly gentle and Madonna-like. I must pay tribute also to the great white evening primrose, Oenothera trichocalyx, which on moonlight nights throws the glamour of fairydom over the dry, commonplace sands. The huge four-inch blossoms shine up like little moons. But beware how you stoop to handle them, for the plants are a favorite harbor for the sidewinder, that wicked little horned rattlesnake that goes sideways and bites without ringing the bell. I have not yet spoken of the plant that makes the greatest show of all about the borders of the desert, where it covers dark canyon walls and the lower slopes of mountains with a stipple of gray that changes in spring to gold. This is the Encelia farinosa, a stiff bush up to two feet high, growing in the favorite hemispherical shape of desert shrubs, with pale gray leaves and brittle twigs that exude a yellow resin. This resin, it is said, has been used under necessity in place of orthodox incense, so that Mexicans and Indians call the plant hierba de incencio. The flowers are yellow stars, profuse and beautiful, and are borne on long, slender stems that project evenly several inches beyond the outline of the bush, which is then like a big gray pincushion stuck full of yellow floral hatpins. The plant is very prolific, and whether in flower or not, is a noticeable feature in any landscape in which it finds a place. Another species, Encelia californica, with dark green leaves, is found oftener on the levels than on hillsides. The mention of the Encelias brings to mind spring days a year or two ago that I spent in Deep Canyon, one of the principal canyons of the northwestern part of the desert. The winter had been one of unusually heavy rains, and every desert plant was doing honor to the rare event. It is hopeless to attempt to give the reader any true impression of the floral outpourings that year as it was revealed to me in Deep Canyon. To put it in one weak figure of speech, it was a torrent of floral color, billows of red, yellow, and blue that filled the long canyon from side to side, the enclosing walls for hundreds of feet up, all painted to one hue of yellow by uncountable myriads of insalia blossoms. To name all the plants that entered into the spring show would be impossible, but the three plants that were most overpowering in volume were the insalia, the bellaperone, and the phosalia yellow, red, and blue, respectively. The canyon was a jungle of these plants, the bushes of Bellaperone especially wonderful, many of them six feet high and eight or ten feet long, wholly covered with the crimson blossoms. Hummingbirds were whirring about, nonplussed like myself at the sight. The plant is known as Flor de Chuparosa, 
hummingbird flower in mexico i am told and honey-loving insects of every degree joined in keeping the air in a conglomerate hum the other plant i named the facilia or so-called wild heliotrope grew in loose tangles all about the sturdier encilia and bellaperones climbing as high as their support allowed and encircling their yellow or crimson in wreaths of delicate blue i must not overlook either that glory of the desert canyons in late spring the flame-colored wild hollyhock Sphericea ambigua i call it flame-colored but it is not that and everybody whom i have asked to name the color has either named it differently or politely declined to try along the base of rocky walls you find bushes of the plant with pale gray-green leaves and superb sprays of blossom which you may call pale vermilion or apricot or brick-red or flame without being correct in any of the terms in the neighborhood of palm springs and in deep canyon i have seen it at its best but every one who sees it in a good season will agree that it is a splendid strange and wonderful flower one other notable flower must be mentioned the so-called desert verbena arbronia arita this like all desert plants varies greatly in its show of blossom according to rainfall and other conditions but when the season is propitious the verbenas make a never-to-be-forgotten impression the rosettes of blossom of a color between pink and purple are crowded together in solid acres almost miles of bloom so closely as to be crushed at every step the gentian meadows of the sierra and the golden poppy carpets of our few yet unplowed foothills are matched and outdone by these rosy purple verbena plains of the desert my little sleeping tent six feet by three pitched where the ground was freest of blossoms enclosed scores of the clusters and the scent within was like that of an orchid house it would be impossible to give here even a brief reference to all the desert growths that are interesting for their uses strange in their characteristics or beautiful in their flowering for instance the odd sandpaper plant petalonyx thurberi whose name indicates its peculiarity to the touch the dyeweed parosela emorii that announces itself too late by a deep yellow stain on your hands or clothing and a great number that the indians value for medicinal or other purposes my notebook shows over a hundred plants that i found remarkable some of them will be spoken of in the chapter on indian lore from the bladder pod of february to the lowly but lovely navaretia that in midsummer tints wide spaces with its delicate harebell blue there is an unbroken flow of color any one who may find himself on the desert in spring especially if it be a spring following a winter of good rainfall as rainfall goes on the desert may count on an experience of wild flowers that if he is a stranger will yield him a memorable and surprising impression End of chapter 4